Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington, D.C.-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. David Fortney, and welcome to another podcast, DC Insiders, What Employers Need to Know. This week, we want to focus on some of the pay equity developments and some of the significant settlements that have occurred And we've got two experts to really help guide us through that. First, we have Nita Beecher with us again. Hi, David. How are you? I'm looking forward to this because pay equity is still there. Big darn deal. It sure is. And helping us is one of our colleagues, Savannah Shuntich. Hi, Savannah. Hello, hello. So happy to be here. Well, we're really happy to have you. Now, Savannah is one of our super top lawyers at Fortney Scott, and she also is the editor of our Pay Equity Bulletin. And the Pay Equity Bulletin is what we use to help keep our clients and friends apprised of all the significant pay equity litigation and other developments. So we just thought it would be perfect to have Savannah come on, since there have been some of these recent developments, to really help brief us on what's going on and help understand those developments. So I think we're going to hear, I think, uh, Nita, on both from the agencies, private litigants. I mean, it's sort of happening on all fronts, along with the expanded reporting and disclosures, too. So there's a lot in this space. Well, I think that's right, David. If you think about it, the federal government really hasn't done much. And uh, Savannah, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast again. You did have a chance to be the on-spot reporter on one of our earlier podcasts, but on AI, which is another area which you do a lot of work. But, you know, I think we haven't really talked much about pay equity and what's going out there. And so let's start to begin with, with something that a lot of people have heard about, which is the U.S. women's soccer team and the settlement they had with the United States Soccer Federation. Yeah, that's right. This lawsuit has been in the news a lot, I think, because of the celebrity of some of the female players. But the lawsuit actually dates back to 2019, and the players alleged that they were paid less than the men's team and subjected to unequal working conditions. The settlement is actually for $24 million. And, and, you know, actually, I'm curious, What did you find most interesting about this settlement agreement? Well, there were a couple of things. One was the fact that they actually lost in the trial court and it was on appeal. And yet the Federation has taken a huge black eye in the press over this. They had to fire the first law firm they had defending them because of their aggressive tactics, allegedly. So I think the U.S. Soccer Federation just decided they needed to get out of this and move on. I do think though, and Savannah, I defer to you on this. I think the having a collective bargaining agreement in which both the men and women are going to be making the same amount of money is a huge step forward for the women's team. Yeah. And for listeners, they negotiated a collective bargaining agreement separate from the settlement. But I do agree with Nita. I think that that collective bargaining agreement is going to be far more significant than the settlement going forward. So let's turn from the women's soccer team to a very longstanding case involving Sterling Jewelers. And 
this is a fascinating case to us because we're lawyers, not just from the aspect of the amount of money involved, but the, the litigation has been going on and on around arbitration. So give us sort of where we are now with Sterling Jewelers. Yes, this settlement was for an eye-popping amount, $175 million. And if you aren't familiar with Sterling Jewelers, you probably are familiar with some of its brands. Every Kiss Begins With K, he went to Jared, some of the members of the brand family there. But specifically, Sterling has been in arbitration fighting a class action brought by 68,000 female employees who alleged the company was discriminating against women in paying promotions. And this settlement was the end of a very long road for both parties. This case actually dates back 14 years. And Nina, I know that you're more familiar with the procedural history of this case, so I'm actually going to hand it off to you to explain that. Well, this was one of those cases where Sterling had put together some kind of an arbitration agreement and had everybody sign it, but it was unclear whether class action arbitration was available. And it went up and down the courts. It was up to the Second Circuit. And as recently as January of 2020, the company was still fighting to turn this to stop having a class litigation uh, in the arbitration. I think they finally just got tired and worn out. Now, interestingly, this case would not change moving forward with the new changes to the Federal Arbitration Act, because As far as I know, there are no harassment claims. But if there were harassment claims moving forward, this kind of class action could not be forced into arbitration. We'll talk about that at a future podcast. But one other thing I wanted to mention before we go to the next case is that Sterling also, meanwhile, had a huge EEOC investigation involved, which was finally settled in 2013 before this litigation was resolved. That's right. And I think we should discuss Google next. So this Google settlement is is one of two settlements I want to discuss involving tech companies. And Google has agreed to settle a private pay discrimination lawsuit for $118 million, so another fairly high dollar settlement there. The settlement covers 15,000 women who alleged that Google discriminated against them in regards to pay and promotions. Specifically, they argued that Google was steering women into lower level positions so that they ultimately received less pay. Um, And I know that there's a history with OFCCP here, Anita. And I think that's a really interesting point. So the Sterling case, that was an EEOC complaint. Now we have a Google case, which is coming on after a settlement with OFCCP, in which Google agreed to pay $3.8 million to 5,500 female and Asian employees. And David, I think you're aware of the relationship that has developed between the plaintiff's counsels and the Uh, at least OFCCP. Yeah, there is this process that they refer to them euphemistically as so-called, quote, coordination agreements, close quote. And under those agreements, private plaintiffs counsel who are representing class action litigants have some coordination and exchange of information and data with the OFCCP when it is conducting an audit. We saw this in the Oracle matter, that while Oracle was under active audit, by OFCCP, and there also was a parallel class action litigation that there was a so-called coordination agreement. It happened in other cases also. It was publicly reported in Microsoft, and we've seen it in several other cases. These are very troubling. As a practical matter, the federal contractor, the employer, is never notified that these agreements exist. It's never clear what the compliance is with the Freedom of Information Act, which is supposed to protect the data and the documents. The contractors are required to give OFCCP during an audit. 
So there are a lot of questions here. And I think this is, again, there's a lot of evidence of fairly close coordination between the government enforcement and the private class action plaintiffs litigants. And although you're giving readouts on these most recent settlements of uh, the private claims, they all were preceded both in Sterling and Google by government enforcement and settlements that I think helped drive and inform the private litigants. My experience when I was at Boeing was very similar. We settled with OSCCP, a longstanding audit and investigation of a number of sites, and we ended up with 10 class actions, one of which was ultimately resolved for $75 million, much more even than some of these. Yeah, I think the key takeaway here is just because you settle with OFCCP, it's not the end of the road. That's correct. Well, speaking of OFCCP, let's just turn right to them. There is a recent relatively large settlement for OFCCP along pay pay discrimination. Yeah, and uh, and here we're talking about a settlement that was recently reached by LinkedIn. They were accused by OFCCP of pay discrimination against female employees in their engineering product and marketing departments. And it's not quite as high of a settlement as some of the others. It's only $1.8 million, but that's a pretty high number for OFCCP. But I think it's pretty significant for this particular agency. I agree with that. One interesting thing, we were talking about Oracle. Oracle ultimately won against OFCCP, and their women are not being as successful as the Google women have been. They may lose their class status in the latest litigation that's going on in the private class. We do want to talk about one other thing before we turn to some of the state action. In Savannah, there was a fairly large Equal Pay Act settlement. We almost never see those. That's right. This was by Speedway. And if listeners aren't familiar with the company, it's basically a convenience store and it's owned by 7-Eleven. There was a class action brought by 4,000 different female general managers who alleged that the male general managers were being paid more than them. And ultimately, they secured a $12 million settlement. As you mentioned, Nita, what's unusual about this case is that it involves a successful Equal Pay Act claim. I'm curious as to why you think that is. Well, David and I, we were talking about this a little earlier. I mean, what is always tricky in Equal Pay Act is because it has to be basically equal work. And in a situation where you have women general managers compared to men, male general managers, that's one of the unusual situations where you really will have, you know, the same work. They're doing the same kind of work. David, other thoughts right. around that? Well, and there have been attempts to bring Equal Pay Act claims in other settings, in higher ed and in the technology sector, and there's much more variability. Even if the job titles are the same, often the jobs themselves are still quite different, quite unique. Mm -hmm. In the context of this matter, Speedway, these are retail. I think we're all familiar with them. They're, if you will, somewhat cookie cutter. They're very standardized operations. The stores are all set up the same. The job duties are all the same. So it is exactly the type of job that when you compare males to females that are in the same job title, they have the same job duties. That is the fact pattern under which one can assert an Equal Pay Act claim, because otherwise everything else is the same. But if the pay is different, it's a pretty easy argument to make. It must be due to pay. So I think that's what's there. It does show, though, because a lot of people wonder, is the Equal Pay Act dead? Is it sufficient? I think the answer is no. This case illustrates it's just that jobs have many, many jobs are sufficiently nuanced and different. The Equal Pay Act's application isn't as clear cut as it was certainly in this type of case, Speedway. 
which is why they keep trying to amend it unsuccessfully, you know, going back to the Obama administration. Well, we're now going to switch gears from litigation to pay transparency, which is a new hot buzzword out in the states. So Savannah, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what pay transparency is in these laws? Sure. Yeah, there's not one particular type of law, but to speak broadly, these laws are designed to make employers disclose the wages and salaries that they're paying employees. Um, And that gives job speakers knowledge of what the pay range for the job is. And then they know more about what they should be paid, what they should ask for. And the, the goal here is really to eliminate pay disparities between the genders and between the races. This goes back to an idea that came out in the Lilly Ledbetter case and subsequent Lilly Ledbetter legislation, that one of the reasons that women and minorities are paid less is they don't know what other people are making. So with that in mind, what about Washington state? I like this as an example because it shows the difference between some of the older pay transparency laws that were being passed and the, and the newer laws that are coming online. So for a few years, Washington State has had a pay transparency law on the books, which required employers to disclose salary or wage data to job applicants in some cases. And they've recently amended the law to actually require that employers place wage scale and salary information directly in job ads. So it's, it's an automatic disclosure requirement, which is going to be publicly available to everyone. This reminds me of the Colorado law that went into effect last year, and we asked a Colorado lawyer whether or not their state agency was actually enforcing it, and she told us, yes, the state agency, at least in Colorado, is going online to LinkedIn to see whether or not employers for Colorado laws are, in fact, putting up the pay ranges for those jobs. Yeah, I find this trend very interesting. And I know there was one other thing, Nita, that you were mentioning about Microsoft's reaction to this new law. Microsoft, in fact, came out because obviously Washington State is its headquarters and has said that they're going to disclose pay ranges for every job posting, not just in Washington, California, and other places that are putting these in. So that may be a big breakthrough. David, what do you think about that idea with employers putting those pay ranges into job postings? Well, welcome to the current workforce. I think that there is growing demand and the concept that this used to be confidential or that we shouldn't be transparent. I mean, I can remember five years ago, people wringing their hands over whether you'd post your EEO1 if you have component two pay data reporting. Well, I think increasingly this is the wave of the future. And I think many employers, at least the discussions I've had with clients are thinking, why don't we get in front of this wave, not be ordered to do it by state Mm -hmm. A or state B, and just come forward, particularly for lower tier jobs, it's not as confidential as opposed to higher level pay. So I think it's increasingly a trend. The states are on it. And I think many employers are viewing, at least for mid-level and below, it's not that big a deal. So Savannah, just quickly, let's talk New York, uh, status of the New York law, which I think is similar to the Washington state law. Yes, very similar. So this law was passed in the state assembly and it awaits the signature of the governor. This would also require disclosure of wage and and salary information in job posting. And all of these laws based on our uh, review are similar to the Colorado law. You file a complaint with the state agency as opposed to, and you get damages, as opposed to having private rights of action, at least at this point. One last one I want to mention, in addition to having the pay transparency aspect to it, the California law, which has only been passed by the Senate, 
would also require employers with 250 or more workers to provide aggregate data, which would be public available, broken down by race, ethnicity, and sex for direct employees and those hired by staffing agencies, and it would start in 2025. As you all know, California already requires employers to provide substantial data uh, similar to the EEO-1 and Component 2. This would be in addition, and I think we love calling this the name and shame law. The name and shame law, which interestingly, I think it's but one example. There's a lot of employers that are leaving California, and they're finding that there are a lot of venues. I mean, when I said before that some organizations don't mind posting their pay, I'm not sure that many organizations would voluntarily want to do what California has in mind, which is that very kind of, I'll call it over-reporting. Yeah, and one thing to quickly note, the California legislation actually would include a private right of action. It's unsurprising. California is usually you know, the first out of the gate in terms of giving rights to the individual. Of course, that could change because it's still legislation that's being amended, so we don't know going forward, but that's something to note. So, David, I think that's what our latest thoughts are. I mean, we're waiting for EEOC to roll out whatever they're going to do on pay data collection. We know OFCCP is planning new regulations that will cover, probably require much more detailed reports to them on pay analysis they're doing. But I think for today, that probably is the roundup. With a lot of state activity. All right. Well, let me do this. Let me ask for your final thoughts as we get going here. Savannah. Pay transparency laws are on the rise. They're coming to a state near you. I'm afraid that's true. Nita? I think multi-state employers need to wonder if they didn't make a huge mistake in not having a federal standard rather than all these individual state standards. Yeah, Nita, to connect both the points that you and Savannah have made, we're seeing federalism here and what most of our clients that are multi-state employers are now looking down the barrel of these multiple posting, reporting with kind of gotcha type requirements, it's going to become increasingly difficult to design uniform corporate policies, procedures in order to comply with this. And I see no appetite in Washington to enact omnibus federal legislation and not to mention legislation that could preempt this patchwork of state laws which is really, really troubling. So yeah, I think the trend is there, probably not positive, but that's the trend. Great. Well, listen, I wanna thank you both for another super session. Savannah, particularly, thanks for joining us again. Nita, as always, really appreciate your participation too. And thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Be sure and subscribe, and we look forward to staying in touch with you in the near future. Thanks, that's it for today. Thanks everyone, we look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.